everyone, and welcome to the Non-Exodent Novel Review. I'm Matthew Glasgow, author. Intentions. In this episode, we continue Chapter 1. Where we left off, Patriarch, the Elder, soon to be named Ak, has been injured in the hunt, leaving his son to take on the role of Chief Hunter for the family. While recovering, Ak grows mad. Envious in his wife Ur's ability to create life, and fervent in his growing faith in the serpent as his god. As his god, Ak begins to tell stories. Stories that grow in scale, are exaggerated, are fictional. It is a new survival instinct in a sense. Understanding he can survive only through extraordinary tales that will remain after he dies. His eldest son, Akyan, is a believer in Ak's serpent faith. However, while on the hunt, Akyan not only encounters this god creature, but a swarm of them. He tries to trust this god, but defends himself and cuts down the creatures. As Akyan returns from the hunt, he discovers his father's madness has reached its peak, and he has killed his mother. Er, in a twisted ultimate statement that he, the male, is more dominant than the female and the true creator, because he can also take life at will. This is an irrevocable moment for the family, and Ak will, with the infant female Ursur and the youngest male Ak-Sir, go on their path, and the eldest male Ak-Yong and eldest female Yur-Yong go there. The chapter concludes with Ak and his group now starving, discovering the slain serpents. Instead of seeing these creatures as mortals like the rest, Ak believes these gods sacrificed themselves as he, and so he can live, and gratefully devours them. The conclusion of this chapter, and the end of our vignette with what I think of as humankind's first family, is meant to be symbolic in many ways, though I tried to consider how such things likely arose in our ancient past. We see Ak representing the old, the dying, the more desperate because he is more acutely aware of his demise. He's no longer the elite hunter. He's graduated to a new element of creature, one that must invent and apply meaning in order to survive. Ak is the epicenter of religion, one that must reach its logical conclusion, which is violence, seen in the senseless murder of Ur, a possibly representation of Earth itself. The eldest son, Akyan, represents the new way, one that is reflexively resisting its father, an old way of life. Akyan has killed his father's god, exposed it as just another mortal being on earth, yet is not necessarily any more wise. He just has a vague sense of what not to be. In this chapter, we're something in the realm of creation myth. This event would be the first great split. As one cell eventually must divide into two, so does humanity. It is a clash of thinking and faith, 
that will likely never go away. We are creatures obsessed with dominance, of winning, of succeeding and not failing. And I must cite, again, the non-Exodus translation, he will not fail. In chapter 2, we see a group of people wandering the desert. Yes, very reminiscent of Moses and the Israelites of Exodus. You can see the immediate parallel and the depiction of the fiery serpents tormenting these wanderers as something specifically mentioned, but I did not specify for a reason. I wanted to establish the familiar with the universal here, or at least attempt to. Yes, we know of the plight of the Israelites, but in the context of the novel, you can interpret it as any group of people. The point being, the easily recognizable symbolism of being lost in the desert and questioning your God. That crisis of faith, personal well-being, and functioning as part of a larger group. The leader of the people in this chapter decides to appease these fiery serpents, and constructing a brass serpent, he places it on a staff. Once he does, the snakes stop bothering him. The spell, the act, has worked. It is a short chapter, but I tried to provide a glimpse at the evolution of people. We go from nature, creature among many with an ability to hunt and use tools, to a creature that can invent further in many different arenas, up until invention of the god itself and the proper way to worship it and keep the invention going. In chapter 3, we are in ancient Rome. Nero is mentioned, but in my mind it takes uh, roughly a place in the 4th century AD. Our vignette's protagonist is Eusebius, promising young scholar who overindulges when on a break from his studies. I model this character loosely on St. Jerome, uh, who was said to have a similar life prior to his conversion to Christianity. I felt it necessary to depict the next progression in faith and what I imagined that actual conversion to be. Eusebius understands this Jesus person through disparate stories around Rome, some early iconography, and the early Christian martyrs. It is while in the actual catacombs of the martyrs that Eusebius experiences his catharsis, understanding that he can use his ability as a writer and scholar to strengthen this faith and purges himself of any indulgent behavior he once had. Through understatement, I summarized the remainder of his life abruptly as, so he wrote, and denied himself of the pleasures of the earth, and denied and died one day in a cave in Bethlehem, a hermit and transcriber of the sacred text. I wanted to show this is possibly something magnificent, that someone could devote such efforts into faith, but also possibly bring to light the absurdity of such a practice. It is a juxtaposition between sacrifice and regression showing Eusebius revert back to the cave seemingly because he thought God wanted him to. Figure of St. Jerome returns when we reach the modern day of the novel. It is the Catholic school Connor Dempsey attends during his elementary school days. And yes, uh, it is the same school that I attended in my life. 
Saw the image of St. Jerome every day, gaunt, bald, leaning over a desk with a quill in his hand. My intention was to include some personal element, again, similar to the verisimilitude of someone like Joyce, but also with the writing motif of the story and the near immortality one can achieve through the recorded language. Inspiration. As a writer, I had to selfishly go to places that I found interesting. To me, it often comes down to mystery and dream, a world that is familiar and unfamiliar simultaneously, seeking answers and being comfortable if they can't all be found. John Gardner, I believe um, in reference to the fictive dream concept, stated, good fiction sets off a vivid and continuous dream in the reader's mind. In this novel, and to an extent most of my writing, at least tries to accomplish this. I wanted to move somewhat seamlessly between myth and speculative history, real history, and modern realism. In a way, to show elements that were strongest in my mind at the time, and perhaps allow readers to get a glimpse of it too. To share my dreams, in a sense, and to feel emerged in it. Ironically, Perhaps my intention to record these audio portions is to explain elements of the text, as I imagine parts could be somewhat unclear, at least in the beginning of this narrative. If you are immersed in the fictive dream, if you are comfortable in the imagined, then I've accomplished what I set out to do. The journey was mine, and now it is yours, readers. Craft and Structure Hopefully, a more articulate vocabulary begins to emerge as we transition throughout the remainder of the text. These events, these people, are both mythic and real at once, ultimately leading to a roundabout characterization of our main protagonist, who will come eventually. His name is Connor Dempsey. His earliest history is the history we all share in the context of the novel, till we inch closer to modernity and we see a world resembling today, and a character defined by the past, but also representing the hopes of youth and the hopes of the future. However, he has not arrived yet, so in the meantime, let's continue our journey with Ak, the wanderers of the desert, and Eusebius, the Roman scholar. The elder slept long, missing the hunt for several lights. The female kept vigil, and it was soon that the elder was like one of her children. His breath was faint, and his only noises were of pains deep within his body, sounding like the beasts of the darkness and light's end. He finally opened his eyes after many lights and tried to rise, only to fall back to the earth. There he stayed, bound to the earth, until the light was at its end, and the elder saw his child return with several meats of prey slung to his shoulder. The child had done well and the kin, the elder included, ate well that evening. Some strength returned to the elder, but he still could not stand, and by no means join in the hunt. As the male sat with the female, he began to speak more prevalently. He spoke of light after he would pass, and what his kin would do once he was gone. Only such thoughts seemed to be in his head since he had fallen during the hunt. The female knew not of the wonders of the serpent, nor the true sk skill of the hunt, and he began to tell her and the other children many tales. His kin sat in quiet awe of the elder, and the oldest began to see their belief in the serpent and the hunt as well. The elder thought that male and female would no longer be sufficient, for 
for when he would leave and the female and children too, who would remember of their time but the earth and sky? He named himself Ak, and he named the female Ur. His children, the eldest male, would be Akyan, the female child Uryan, and the youngest male Akser. Ak grew strong enough to stand, but pain would soon pull his knees to the earth, and his hands had strength to hold but not to strike. He would continue to be left from the hunt. Akyan ensured him that the serpent would guide and allow his bones to heal, as it had done to himself. Ak smiled as he knew his child now believed. One light as he hunted, Akyan saw the serpent reappear, now in the path which had been an untrodden clearing. The light shimmered on its head and its piercing eyes enraptured Akyan. Please, great guide, heal my elder as you do yourself. Give new life as it comes to you, Akyan spoke. The serpent remained unmoved, yet Akyan heard the serpent's voice from behind him. Akyan peered into the darkness until the serpent crawled out and joined Akyan on the path. How could this be, Akyan thought as he snapped his head back and forth. Two serpents? He heard the hiss louder, and soon two more serpents emerged, followed by two more, and soon he was surrounded. The hiss nearly deafened him, but he did not shut his ears. Perhaps they were giving him a message. He needed to endure the hissing sting longer. The serpents continued to move closer and soon formed a circle around Akyan. Their eyes all gazed upon him sharply. He had known such looks from the beasts of the darkness. He took out his tool and rotated himself while in the serpent circle. As one stood toward his face, Akyan swung fiercely and continued to swing until he was released from the scaly tethers. He ran up the path but glanced back to view several lifeless serpents on the trodden earth. He had not the courage to tell the elder of the event in the darkness. The elder's health in body did not return, but with each light he seemed more enveloped in this serpent and his own tails. Akyan noticed the tales begin to change. Even the times he had experienced with the elder seemed grander, with larger beasts, rougher terrain, and the omnipresent aid from the serpent. Ur's stomach grew during this time, and as the darkness sifted from the skies, she birthed another female, and she was named Ursur. At the child's birth, Ak realized that his strength would not return. He watched Ur nurse and smile, and he watched his eldest male, Akyan, walk to the hunt. He seemed out of tales, and he knew those oldest remembered who he once was, and soon they would all regard him as an old fool. This cannot be, for I am Ak, and the serpent is my guide. With the light passing into darkness, Akyan returned from the hunt with meat for his kin. The settlement was amiss, as Ur was not nursing the female child, Ur-Sur, on the furs of the great beast of the darkness, but rather his elder was holding the child. Ak will live, the serpent will guide, Ak whispered rocking the young Ursur back and forth. Elder? Ak peered at Akyan, the burn in Ak's eyes through the darkness. The male creates, the male gives life, the male endures. Ak, with you two and your males and our kin will be great. The darkness no more. Ak screamed and shook Akyan. The lights are there in the sky. Others have been great and they stay above for all time. Akyan felt the warm liquid on the elder's hands. Blood. They, Ak pointing at Ursur, and then in the distance, birth, but we can take. Without the take, there is no life. Tears now entered both males' eyes. Ur, no. Yes, yes. They collapsed into themselves, down into the cold earth, Akyan seeing the bloody tool by his elder's side, and they wept. Akyan left with Uryan the following light, 
out past the darkness to where the elder's eyes could not see. Ak, carrying Ur-Sur, and aided by Oxer, walked into the darkness, all weary from lack of meat. Ak stumbled over twigs and stones until his male child guided him to the trodden path. There they found the dead serpents, many rotted, but one flailing from small lacerations until it at last too was lifeless. Ak looked at his children and the sky, unsure for a moment, but then realizing, he has died so we may live, and they ate the serpent. The tribe wandered through the desert, free of their captors, but in desperate need of food and water. Women and children moaned in agony, and several tribesmen perished with each new day. They had reverted to a previous time, scouring the earth for edible shrubs, vermin, or even large insects. They had eaten in ways that angered their god, and some even questioned his existence. Over dunes and butts, the head tribesman led with his staff. He had promised his people freedom, and this at last they had. As he heard their cries and felt their own pangs and withering body, he questioned if he had made the right decision. They were slaves, but they were not dead. Had there been a time without such things? Why was God so cruel as to bring suffering and death? Was it better to have independence or a life of servitude? The days of wandering and suffering continued, and then were the days of the fiery serpents. So wicked was it for a creature to crawl on its belly and strike at men's heels, to forever cause men to look down on the earth, to startle from a sound sleep, to fear. And this serpent was in man too. It was in the pyramid builders and bronze shapers and men enslavers, to kill and punish without mercy so they can survive. Not only a survival of a man's life, but to live on beyond that, to be a statue or a tale inscripted in a stone. The head tribesman even knew those serpents were within his own people. Could it even be within himself? The serpents who crawled through the sand afflicted his people with much death. His people reached to the sky and cursed their vengeful God. He knew their anger, and it angered him as well. You live or you die. It is not your role to question his decision. He brings this creature to us as another test. It is in our suffering that we have our faith. The tribesmen looked among his people. Melt your brazen chains and create a serpent of bronze. It is only through praising our death bringer that we may live. The people constructed the brazen snake and nailed it to a staff. They were then never struck by the serpents until they found their way home. Eusebius passed by St. Peter's Basilica, stopping for a moment to marvel at the impressive structure. It had once been a circus during the time of Nero. The emperor had gone mad with the potential glory he could achieve for himself and Rome, his mind diluted by ancient kings like Priam and the sensational plays of Greece. He set his city ablaze in hopes of clearing the old structures for his new grand design and golden kingdom. As the fire eventually burned out, he blamed the upstart disciples of Christ and performed public martyrdoms on his circus. Peter, Christ's disciple, was said to have fled the city when Christ appeared to him and said to Peter that he, Christ, had returned to be martyred again. It was then that Peter, the one who lost his faith on the water and sank and who denied knowing Christ to save himself from death, and had tried for the remainder of his life to atone for this sin by making others have faith and have the courage to say they know Christ and accept their own martyrdom for the kingdom of God with faith that they will live again, finally completed his covenant by taking the Christ for cross and dying on Nero, the matricidal thespian and emperor's grounds. 
It was with the martyrdoms for life again that the followers of Christ continued to grow, while Nero eventually fled to the hills and opened his veins and knew it was his duty to do so. Peter's body was placed in the catacombs of Nero's circus, and soon the tomb became a place of pilgrimage, then a shrine, and now a basilica commissioned by the emperors of Rome themselves. Eusebius continued down the street until he reached the market. There he purchased a bottle of wine and seared steak and made his way to the opium hall. A senator was orating on a precipice by the state building about the continued need for piety in order to maintain the glory of the empire. While the patricians and plebeians and slaves applauded alike, Eusebius scoffed at the senator's cliched and clunky rhetoric and continued on his way. He had won much favor by his schoolmaster because of his oration skills, but more importantly, his mastery of language, both Latin and Greek. It was now noonday, market day, and he longed to put the studies of language and old Greek tragedies aside and consume in all the pleasantries of life. That was what those Christians did not understand, he thought, while drinking his wine in the hall and watching his opium pipe burn. They live just to deny the pleasures of the earth. They see not that our own end could be tomorrow, so why not live the best way possible? They deny the plays and poems that give us true feeling, sorrow and joy. Speak and write with precision and elegance, and you will be immortal enough, and live again when someone reads what you have written or remembers what you have said. Live on in the hearts of men. He continued to drink until he was free of inhibitions. True freedom in his mind. True religion as the Spirit and God has taken a hold of the flesh. Eusebius went to bed with women of the hall, drank the wine, and consumed the hallucinogens until he was free of memory and was carried home by his comrades. On Sunday, he walked to the catacombs of the saints and martyrs. His guilt pressed heavily on his mind and coursed through every hair of his being. A collage of memories and sensations seemed sewn to his innards, and he could not find the thread to unravel them away. He had spoken to his tutors, but they were of little help. They, too, embraced the Hellenistic pleasures and found no need for regret in fulfilling the cadre of desires in men. Perhaps these catacombs would lead him to some, at least temporary, catharsis. The catacombs were deep in the earth. Eusebius descended the dark, steep staircase until he reached the crypts with only a torch to light his way through the darkness. There were stone carvings of fish, which Eusebius knew as Christ recruited apostles who were previously fishermen, and crucifixes for their Messiah's execution. The dank smell of death was ever-present, bone and flesh rotting away in their stone tombs, some bodies enduring incineration, maulings, decapitations, arrows, and, of course, crucifixions. This sacrifice and martyrdom enraptured Eusebius's mind. They had died for their beliefs and had no fear. They walked, talked of a world to come where God would be with them and they would never die. These beings, shut in their stone cells, would return and have the glory, for they helped give it to themselves. Eusebius stepped further and saw the relief of Christ as the good shepherd carrying the young lamb on his shoulders. He leaned closer to examine the details of this Christ figure when his torch suddenly blew out. In the darkness, he was alone with his immense grief. His mind raced and he began to think of his own death and the idea of truly being dead and just being bones in a grave and then one day dissolving away and the afterlife, and the river Styx, and paying the ferryman, and Ulysses deep down in the underworld, and seeing his mother, and then Agamemnon betrayed by his lover, and great Achilles who would trade life as a dirt farmer for glory and death, 
and a God coming to earth and commingling with man and man killing God and then denying him. And then for him to deny you salvation. And then his mind stopped. He felt the martyrs and apostles before him and he felt the faith. And he knew that anything great was a sacrifice and his pen could lead to there, everyone outside of the catacombs, salvation. So he wrote and denied himself the pleasures of the earth and died one day in a cave in Bethlehem, a hermit and transcriber of the sacred text. We move onward to the future, ah, but not too far yet. The gears of progress are moving, and in chapter four, we meet our next hero, Patricius, a young man captured, enslaved, and on his way to the shores of Ireland. Please join me next time as we continue the review and reading of Non-Exodus. Thank you everyone for listening.